This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 113, the third part of the Ultra Running Stranger Things series. This episode will report on many sad health impacts on runners who took part in the amazing indoor six-day races in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Thanks to those of you who have signed up to be an Ultra Running History patron. Please support Ultra Running History by going to ultrarunninghistory.com member and sign up to contribute a little each month to help keep this history coming. Also, make sure you subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. Hit that subscribe or follow button. Sadly, some professional walkers and runners from the pedestrian era, more than 120 years ago, became afflicted by mental illness or physical problems during and after six-day runs, likely caused by powerful drugs and stimulants that were used at the time, and due to mental stress breakdowns. Enormous pressure was put on them by their financial backers to be successful. Their trainers or crew would at times resort to measures that would have long-term effects on the health of their runners to get short-term financial windfall. Not only would they load their runners full of stimulants, but would use cruel methods to keep them awake, including sticking needles in their skin, whipping them, and waking them up with very loud horns. In some cases, runners acted so irrationally that they were declared insane and committed to institutions. In 1891, John Gowan, called the Salvation Army Walker, participated in a six-day race in Madison Square Garden and had reached 278 miles. Just after midnight, Gowan showed signs of mental trouble. In the morning, he started walking again, but his eyes grew wild and staring, and he let out a Wild West war whoop. It was reported, His trainer squeezed a sponge soaked in water and ammonia in his face. Gowan struck his trainer in the face and made a bolt for the Madison Avenue end of the garden. He cleared the fence of the track in one leap. Then the fellow rushed wildly down the paved lobby, cleared the brass railing at the ticket box, and ran out into Madison Square Garden arrayed in all glory of dirty tights and a bright blue silk jumper. Two policemen gave chase and caught the escaped pedestrian. Bringing him back, the officers lifted him bodily over the rail, and his trainers led him back to his hut and put him to bed. A moment later, one of them opened the door to take a peep at the fatigue-crazed pedestrian, and Gowan plumped him a singing blow in the face. Gowan was then locked in his hut, but later broke out, insisting on returning to the track, half-naked. A policeman convinced him to change his mind. The crazed fellow drank nearly a quart of kerosene oil that was in the hut which he had been locked into by trainers. His friends next took him to a room in Putnam House and locked him in, but he escaped through a window and down a fire escape. Upon reaching the street, he sped down 4th Avenue in quicker time than was ever made on the tan bark. At this point, he was spied by an officer. 
When the officer tried to arrest the man, he fought like a tiger, and finally assistance had to be called. He was taken to the police precinct, and thence in an ambulance to Bellevue Hospital. It was concluded that his illness was caused by a lack of nourishment. The trainers were accused of giving Gowan so much whiskey that it would have knocked out any other man. It was believed that he had gone insane, but a few days later he had recovered. A short rest was all that he needed to restore his mind. His sister commented that he had not been fit for the severe mental and physical effort demanded by a six-day race. He retired from the sport. Not only would runners be accused of going insane for six-day races, but there was also one case of a spectator acting strangely. In 1888, Julie Finley of New York City had attended a six-day match with great enthusiasm. Afterwards, it was said that she was found constantly walking around her apartment, believing that she was beating the world record. She was, quote, committed for examination as to her sanity. There were several cases where former pedestrians later experienced a mental illness and their families believed that it had been caused by their ultra-running. James Noon of Cliffwood, New Jersey was one such athlete who competed in a six-day race. Several years later in 1903, he was taken to the state asylum at Trenton, New Jersey, blaming his condition on the effects of that race. In 1891 in Chicago, John S. Dobler, a former very accomplished professional six-day pedestrian who had once held a world record, had been delivering mail for the post office. Recently, he began carrying away everything that attracted his attention in the stores where he left mail. He was declared insane by Judge Scales and was sent to an asylum. In Dobler's room were found stolen bottles of cologne, brandy, cigars, and rolls of cloth. Millie Rose suffered terribly during a race due to taking all sorts of, quote, stimulating fluids, including beer and brandy. She collapsed on the track and during her next match experienced a seizure while on the track. She was bedridden for the next several months and her abusive husband had her declared insane, left her and took all her money. Thankfully, she eventually recovered, competed again and had her husband arrested. In 1877, people in Princeton, Illinois, believed that walking in a 24-hour match ruined Carrie Parker's life and drove her to insanity. She had become a, quote, raving maniac and was brought before a court. Her father testified that ever since the walking match, his daughter had been suffering with great nervous prostration, and recently she suddenly conceived of the idea that her whole body was charged with electricity and she would not touch her feet to the floor. She was sent to an asylum. With the intense emphasis on very lucrative wagers, during this era of ultra-running, the health of the runner was important but seemed to be a secondary worry, even with doctors on the scene. Yes, a few deaths even resulted. Doping was not scrutinized. Some runners claimed to not use stimulants, but most did. Some even used powerful drugs to keep them awake and moving. The long-term effects resulting in poor health became obvious. Fainting on the track during a race was common, and something that fascinated spectators. During an 1879 six-day race in San Francisco, 
William Chenoweth from San Francisco, California, started to act strangely on the track, staggered from side to side as though dizzy. He took a rest, came out again, and then fell on the track senseless at about 412 miles. He was carried to his tent and then was seized with a violent vomiting fit. It was rumored that he had been drugged to prevent him from reaching 450 miles. Another story is the trouble was caused by excessive use of a lotion on his feet, the poisonous elements in the location getting into his blood, producing effects similar to strychnine. An antidote was administered, relieving him, but his chances were spoiled. He eventually recovered and competed in other six-day races the following year. In another race in 1902, during a six-day race in Philadelphia, Patrick Cavanaugh of Trenton, New Jersey, also fell on his face on the track. Without any warning, he suddenly reeled and fell forward heavily on his face, throwing the spectators in the greatest excitement possible. He was picked up instantly and carried to his dressing room, where he revived in a few minutes. He was checked out by doctors and was soon back on the track. He went on to win the race with 532 miles. Sadly, later that year, while working on a building, Kavanaugh fell through an opening between two joists and seriously injured his hips. It was thought that he would be crippled for life, but a few months later he was back to his winning ways. Six years later, while trying to make another comeback in 1908, Kavanaugh became critically ill while training for a race in Erie, Pennsylvania. He likely had colon cancer. About a week later, he died at the age of 53 during an operation trying to fix his intestinal trouble. In 1879, during the fifth Astley Belt race in Madison Square Garden, William H. Dutcher, a railroad fireman from Poughkeepsie, New York, fainted on the track after only 22 miles. He came back just one minute later, staggered, and dropped again. It seemed that he was subject to convulsions. He was laid upon his cot and a physician attended to him. When he recovered consciousness, he begged in the most piteous manner to be allowed to go on the track again. But the doctor said emphatically, If that man is put on the track again, I will not answer for his life. It was said that Dutcher, quote, sobbed like a baby. <laughs> he later explained, I've got some trouble with my heart. I chewed a lot of tobacco while training, and that brought on the trouble. My heart beats like a trip hammer. If I had gone on, they said it would have killed me. Dutcher was one of the early ultra-running frauds who had cheated during a solo six-day race by bribing timers and judges and skipping out on huge debts. Why he was still allowed to compete is a wonder. After this incident, Dutcher retired from the sport. During an 1888 six-day race in Madison Square Garden, Joseph Romeo Sullivan of Banger, Maine, the Banger Ghost, fainted on the track. He received little mercy from his friends. Less than two hours later, his trainers shoved him back on the track. There is not the ghost of a hope of him covering the 526 miles necessary to entitle him to a share of the booty. But the poor fellow is pushed on by his friends. He finished with 383 miles. About 10 years later, he died in a poorhouse. There were plenty of other health scares experienced by runners. 
Gus Guillermo experienced bleeding from his lungs, which scared him. In 1888, John Dillon, a railroad baggage master of New York City, was running in a six-day race in Madison Square Garden and only needed 20 more miles to earn a lucrative share of the gate money. Several friends had brought the longshoreman a generous supply of Jersey Lightning, which he drank too freely. Later on, he stopped on the track and refused to go on. Three of his competitors tried to help and took his arms, making him walk with them. But finally, he bolted off the track and refused to go on. He surprisingly withdrew and did not qualify for the huge payday. As professional pedestrianism became more popular, health experts of the era believed that these ultra-runners were severely impacting their life expectancy. Pedestrian contests have done much harm, and any man who makes a practice of six-day walks cannot live to an old age because the strains wasted the nervous and muscular tissues. Also, Physicians agree that these protracted strains upon walkers' systems shorten their lives. It is the excess of exercise that is dangerous. These, of course, had no data to back up their guesses. In reality, the greats Edward Payson Weston and Daniel O'Leary lived into their 80s and 90s, far longer than the normal life expectancy of that era. However, premature deaths did occur for assorted reasons. In 1879, William Harris was competing in a six-day event in Louisville, Kentucky, and was running in second place when he died suddenly from, quote, a congestive chill brought on by his striving to win the prize. He had reached 300 miles, left the track in exhaustion, and died the next day. Harris had no prior history as an ultra-runner, and it was his first attempt to run that distance. During that same month in 1879, Mr. Lavelle, aged 23, was competing in a walking match in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. He soon became ill and died in a few hours. He also was a rookie runner. David L. Hogue, another rookie runner, died in 1880, two days after a match in Glens Falls, New York. According to the coroner inquest, his death was because of the stimulants and morphine that were administered to him during a race. One of the contestants says that the backers and trainer of the walker repeatedly gave him morphine without the doctor's knowledge, and that one of the accused parties was seen personally kicking Hold while in the ring in a collapsed condition to rouse him to action to win the race, which he did. The trainer, Richard H. Nichols, was arrested for manslaughter, although the grand jury would be asked to indict him on first-degree murder. The New York Tribune thought the charges were ridiculous. Nichols could have no felonious desire to kill Hogg. On the contrary, his paramount desire must have been to keep him alive. His judgment may have been bad, he may have been criminally reckless, and may have rendered himself liable to some penalty, but most certainly he did not commit murder in the first degree. No results for the case were found. In 1879, Benjamin Fowler, a store clerk, age 56, and George Leck competed in a six-day match at Flushing, Long Island, New York. It was a very close race. They were only two miles apart during the last day, but Fowler started to show signs of failing. He fell three times on the track, but would not quit in spite of the advice of his trainers. 
Fowler continued to lose time up to the finish, and Luck came in the winner. Fowler made 368 miles and was carried from the track in critical condition. It is feared he will die. Fowler retired from ultra running, continued in poor health, and in 1880 moved to Omaha, Nebraska for a time, hoping to get better. He lived until 1899, died at the age of 76, and at the time was one of the oldest residents of Flushing. Sadly, a pattern of suicides afflicted many of these ultra-runners of the 1800s. There were likely many reasons, but it was common for successful runners to pile up a fortune of winnings only to see it gone within a few years due to wild spending, gambling, or from being swindled. Health issues were also a factor. In 1881, Joseph Allen, age 35, a very accomplished six-day pedestrian, who once walked 525 miles in Madison Square Garden, but failed in his last race, was found dead on a road near North Adams, Massachusetts. The physician's verdict was heart disease, although a man of his description jumped from a railroad train late Monday night at a point where his body was found. Allen participated in the last three six-day go-as-you-please pedestrian contests in New York City. He leaves a wife and several children in Adams, where he made his home since coming from Carlisle, England. In 1883, Charles M. Mitchell of Concord, New Hampshire, a well-known local pedestrian, attempted suicide by cutting his throat with a razor. He had been ill for some weeks and thankfully did not cut deep enough to do serious harm. In 1888, J.M. White, a bookkeeper and pedestrian from Georgia, attempted suicide by swallowing a number of morphine pills. In 1885, Albert Wall of Australia, a professional pedestrian, while suffering from a psychotic condition typical of withdrawal from drugs involving hallucinations, jumped from a high building and, quote, was smashed to pieces on the pavement. In 1879, Maddie Potts, a female pedestrian and actress from New York City, attempted a 2,600-mile walk from Philadelphia to New Orleans and back in five months. She claimed that she had recently walked 225 miles in a six-day race, rested a week, and then began. She said she was a widow, had four children, but now childless. She walked carrying a cane covered with skulls and bones, which was a piece of an old umbrella, and carried a small satchel that included a revolver inside. She said her efforts were being made in order to win a $10,000 prize, or $5,000, the number kept changing. Potts was described as blonde, tall, and bony. She wears a jaunty white straw hat trimmed with blue ribbon, a short black walking dress, and store shoes. She explains that she thirsts for glory. She kept notes as she journeyed and hoped to write a book. She generally walked on railroads and sent her luggage ahead down the line. Somehow she found time and energy to put on paid walking exhibitions in the evenings along the way. Curiously, she sometimes arrived in town on a train. She complained about towns that would charge her for her meals. Potts said in Alabama she had trouble with the train. A gravel train backed upon her while she was on a bridge, and she jumped on an iron bridge support and swung herself over the water and hung there. She said along the way she had 11 proposals for marriage. Somehow she completed her promised journey. She was a celebrity but did not receive the money. 
It was discovered that the $5,000 bet had never been finalized before she started her walk. Building on her perceived fame, she tried to put on walking exhibitions in New York City and Baltimore, in a garden, and in a saloon, but they were financial failures. Within a month, she attempted suicide by, quote, placing her head on the railroad track. Someone noticed her in time and thwarted the attempt. In her pocket was found a note that included, I am about to do a rash act that I hope the world will forgive me doing. It is nearly five weeks since I returned from Philadelphia. I was in debt for one week's board, and I was politely told by the proprietor that I could stay no longer. She had tried to get employment, but said she was rejected over and over again. She concluded, I want my body given to the medical students in Philadelphia. I am perfectly sane, but I have nothing to live on or nothing to live for. So goodbye to the world. She was locked up for the night at the police station because attempting suicide at that time was a crime. Whenever the long, shrill swistle of the train speeding by near the police station were heard, the woman started up and begged to be let out that she might go and throw herself under the locomotive. The next day, she was given a hearing in front of a magistrate. She related that she was in an unfortunate marriage, her husband being a dissipated fellow who died three years ago after the birth of three children. She had employment in a suit store and was thrown into the pedestrian business afterwards as an alternative against starvation. She also explained that at the exhibitions in New York City and Baltimore she had been swindled, became disgusted, and contemplated suicide. When asked as to who it was that swindled her, she declined to state. She said she felt well physically, but mentally had not improved, and if she did not get employment, she would try again to consummate her suicidal intentions. The judge was smart and believed that she wasn't really a suicide threat, that she was just trying to generate sympathy and publicity. A well-known lady took interest in her and started to collect donations for her. Analyzing her walking pace, destinations, and her story along the way printed in many newspapers, her walk was a fraud and she had taken railroad rides. She stayed for free at hotels and received many presents along the way. About a year later, she was seen, quote, tramping across the continent, along with other frauds taking advantage of the sympathies of the public. When last heard from, she was in Nevada. She carries a bundle in which she had clothing and provisions and tramps along the road, making an average from 25 to 30 miles a day. It is believed that she died three years later in 1883. Stay tuned for more ultra-running Stranger Things. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, And most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.